Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. This week's podcast is from JALT International, which I was lucky enough to attend and be able to do so very conveniently because it was in my hometown of Fukuoka. So what we're going to be doing in today's uh, podcast is speaking to people who are presenting, people who are attending, and also speak to people who represent the publishers of textbooks that you may be using right now. So without further ado, let's get started. All right, so you find us here with uh, Mark Helgerson from Miyagi Gakuen University, a former interviewee. And we're here at the Pearson desk. Okay, yeah, I'm... I'm uh Tomorrow I'm doing a positive psychology session on time confetti. But one of the, first of all, because everybody's like, what's that? It, it basically, it's the concept that, the, the part that's surprising is, because we all feel way overworked and we feel we have no free time. Actually, people have more free time now than they did X number of years ago. And some people talk about 10 years ago, and some people talk about 50 years ago. It doesn't really matter. We have more free time. But the time confetti aspect is it's broken into five and 10-minute chunks. You know, five minutes till your next Zoom, 10 minutes till your next faculty meeting. And so we feel that's useless, wasted time. There's nothing we can do with it. The concept of working with time confetti is look at it. What are you going to do with it? And so I've, uh, I've got a web... I've got a page on my website about it, and teachers are sending in ideas, which we've got, I don't know, bunches of them listed. And, and I talk about it with students, and what can you do? And it might be as simple as uh, you got 10 minutes before your next class. You and your friend go for a walk and talk about whatever you did the last class. Or, very personal one, I figured out the nearest ice cream machine, to my the nearest <laughs> to my office is... Uh, three and a half minutes which means in 10 minutes I can go to get a get an ice cream cone and come back to my office and it's using the time but the thing I thought was funny about the the jolt aspect this this is my 40th jolt which makes me old Um, but you always put a hook word in your jolt presentation because you want an audience and so my hook word is time confetti because everybody's like what's that mean but when it came out on the schedule, it says, uh, Helgeson, positive psychology in ELT 4 dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and the hilarious part is I printed these. I mean, I knew, I knew that was going to happen, but I couldn't really change, yeah. change the, the thing I was printing just for, for my own benefit. So now I know put your hook word in the first 25 characters well um that's very very good advice and uh, one of the you know you know background details that we don't often get when i mean i've never organized a conference so i don't know about these things the last time we spoke we talked about uh, your textbook on you know including positive thinking and happiness in positive lang- psychology positive psychology, anyway, uh, positive psychology in uh, in language teaching mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about these like small activities that you can, you know, use to increase your happiness, not just for yourself but for others as well. So, right. are there any 
pieces of advice for using this time confetti that have a kind of double impact that help yourself and others? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things we've been doing with students. Like, I'll give them a few examples. I, I mentioned the ice cream thing, breathing, etc. But then we brainstorm as a group. Um, and, okay, one, one example is uh, we're here at a conference. There are all these interns. I've got a bunch of chocolate in my backpack to give away to volunteers because that by doing doing kind things that makes me happier because bribery always works <laughs> but they are like hey somebody actually cares that I'm volunteering here and so it's it's a it's a fun thing you can do and just getting students into that mentality that that uh, look at stuff you can do for other people it's going to make you happier mm. Yeah. One other thing, if I can bring it up, just because it's it's a little not what people expect, but that I've I've been doing some work on. Too many people think positive psychology is like is happyology, is power positive thinking, something like that. So I uh, I made a web page called "It Ain't Happyology," which is about using positive psychology to deal with negatives, to deal with. You know, on the serious end, depression, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, romance problems, um, exhaustion, all these little things that there are actually very practical things that you can do. Um, one example, I, I teach my students deep breathing, which is actually yoga breathing, but I call it deep breathing because it, it doesn't sound like you're from California. Um, and just things like that that they can do to control their own mind, which will deal with some of the stress, and, and we all face stress. Uh, well, we've covered this uh, uh, in a podcast that we had on meditation, mm -hmm. and that meditation, it doesn't need to be something that you spend 45 minutes on in an isolation tank. It can just be, and the person who we interviewed, just the 20 seconds before your lesson starts, putting yourself in a, in a positive, present frame of mind. So I think that that's useful advice. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Mark. Okay, can I plug? Well, oh, please do. If people want to visit the It Ain't Happyology page, go to uh, eltandhappiness.com and then look down the left column and you'll see It Ain't Happyology. Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, I hope uh, people get some help from your presentation tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you very much and thanks for having me. All right, so I'm speaking here with uh, David Kendrick from Tanuki Games. Y you are here promoting a product, your product, Can Tanuki Games. Could you, yes. could you tell us a little bit of the background? So we're Tanuki Games. We're a company that creates games for the classroom. So instead of gamification where you roll the dice, move a character, and then say a sentence, this is more of a game where the students will intrinsically communicate with each other using more natural English in order to play the game. So in order to play the game, they have to use English. So it's a little bit more natural for them. Uh, we have different games that the students can play. We have a game called So Says Japan. Um, so Says Japan is a survey says type game where the students are giving a card that has a question. So for example, the question is, what is the worst day? So, I, so um, David is, is now showing me one of these cards and it's, uh, it's a pie chart with uh, you know, various options given and percentages. So before we get the answer, uh, people listening, just, just have a guess. What would be your answer to the worst day? And what is the answer? 
So we would ask the students, um, Wednesday is 9%. What percent would be Tuesday? So the students would guess, is Tuesday higher or lower than Wednesday? Is it first, second, third, fourth, or fifth? And what percent is it? 1 to 10, 11 to 20? And the students would bet. And the answer is, Tuesday is higher, it's second, and it's 24%. So if the students get um, each one correct, they can get one point for higher and lower, two points for first, second, third, and then three points for the percentage. So there's a, there's a, there's a board in front of with uh, playing pieces and able to track your score. So this is related to the Sosez Japan version, yes? yes? Okay. For basically how long would students play this for? Is this intended to be a warm-up? Is this intended to be content-based? Uh, is this something that you do as a break from normal class activities? Or can you kind of structure a whole curriculum around this? So that's the beauty about this game, is that it actually is all of that. Mm. You can use it for a warm-up. You just do one card, quick warm-up, the students answer, and then you move into the lesson. Um, if you want a little break and let the students have a little bit of fun, you can make it the whole class. If you want to, you can make it an actual lesson where the students will play the game for half the class, and then each student will get a card, and then they have to present on the information on the card. So you can get them to practice presentation skills on displaying graph information mm -hmm. and such. So you can do many things with it. It's a very versatile game. You can play with the whole classroom. You can have them put into groups so that they work together and they're discussing, I think it's higher, I think it's lower, I think it's maybe first, no, I think it's second. You can also afterwards have the students do their own poll in the classroom mm. to see um, what their class thinks. And based on uh, what I'm seeing here, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's very practical, it's very colorful, it's something that I haven't seen you know, readily available. Is this what motivated you to do it or was there, a, was there a felt need, something missing in your class that you wanted to fill? We felt the need for actual games. Um, all of us here at Tanuki Games are actual gamers. We love playing board games and stuff. And we were tired of the simple games that were just roll, dice, and go. And we wanted to make an actual game that the students can enjoy playing while at the same time learning English. So we like to play these games ourselves just by ourselves. It's a fun game to play with yourself and then you can play with the students and the students are having fun, they're playing a game and at the same time they're learning. So it's helpful for them to get to practice their English as well. Well these pieces do look suspiciously like Settlers of Catan. Uh, just as a practical point, where did you source the materials and, and how did you get the, all, the, all the hardware set up for this? So for Sosos Japan, um, currently we have meeples um, to show in the to pretty much everybody, all the teachers, but you don't, the meeples don't come with the game. You can use your own meeples if you want to, or you can use um, little counters. One way I do it in my classroom is I have the students use their erasers, mm -hmm. or you can print out their board. Um, the board is available online for printing. You can print it on a B4, and then the students can circle with a pencil, mm -hmm. and then when it's finished, they erase and then move on. So you can use it many times. And uh, could you, uh, to finish our interview, could you tell us the name of your website and where people can go to see your uh, products? Sure. Uh, so we're Tanuki Games. Our website is www.tanukigames.org. So you can find us. We have um, many games for English classroom for sale. We have Sosa Japan. We have High Five. We have Yabai. And we're currently 
making more games and we're looking to create even more games for the classroom as well. Well, thank you very much for your time today, David, and I hope uh, you have a successful conference. Oh, thank you, and I hope you enjoy your conference. Okay, so you find us here with uh, James Hall, a colleague of mine from uh, Iwate University, and uh, so you're going to be presenting tomorrow, I believe? That's correct, yes. And what is your topic? Uh, my topic is dilemmas that student teachers encounter when they do their teaching practice. And so, not to you know put any spoilers out there, but you know we're not going to be presenting, we're not going to be putting this online until Wednesday. So, uh, what are some of these dilemmas you're going to be covering? Okay, that's um, a really good question. Well, basically, what I've done is I have coded five years worth of students' critical incident reports or reports on their teaching. And what I've found is it's really difficult to find the most frequent dilemmas because there's so many and so many different kinds. But I think what I'm going to basically argue is that part of teaching, or I think the joy of teaching, is encountering these dilemmas and trying to resolve them. So for example, a very common dilemma would be that student teachers um, you know, go into the lesson thinking that they're going to use a lot of English. And then they invariably encounter that the children don't understand their English. Okay, and so then what do they do in that situation? In many cases, they panic and they start using Japanese. Um, so, uh, you know, part of teaching is going to be kind of dealing with that anxiety and overcoming that anxiety and accepting that maybe the children won't understand everything that you say. Um, How easy it, is it for particularly people at the beginning of their career to kind of accept and take on that advice and uh, you know actually actually learn from it do they do they learn better from the advice being given or from the general experience of being in the classroom they don't learn from advice they learn from I think trial and error mm. um, and then at, but after trial and error they're more susceptible or more willing to listen to advice or understand the advice um, but yeah I mean what I found um, I've been doing this for 20 years, mm -hmm. and what I found is that we have to give student teachers the opportunity to make mistakes. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it's it's often said that we learn better from experience than by someone yeah. uh, telling us. So, uh, generally, I, I mean, is, does this come from a course where you are teaching teachers, or are you in a counseling role? Yes. So this comes from a class where I'm teaching teachers. I have a English teaching methodologies program that I oversee at my university, Iwate University, and student teachers over the span of two years teach four, or take four English teaching methodologies courses, and in each course they teach at a local school. Mm. So they have a chance to kind of uh, test the theory that they're learning in the university classroom. And this might sound like an odd question, but is there anything that you've learned about teaching teachers by being a teacher-teacher uh, that has helped make you a better language teacher? Well, that's, that's a really good question. What has, I think, you know, what I have learned from teaching teachers is that there is no such thing as a perfect class. And I think that a lot of times we don't explain things well. We don't think out activities very well. Um, but I've learned that you don't have to worry. There is no such thing about being perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect teacher and in the end what you're trying to do is help students learn and at the very end even though it's very messy if students will have learned something then you've been successful well that's a, a really helpful piece of advice for 
everyone uh, to go out on. So thank you very much for thank your you. time today, James, and uh, good luck with your presentation. Thank you very much. Enjoy the talk. Okay, so you find us here with uh, Karen Matatsugu from uh, Kwasi Women's University. Um, if I could just ask, first of all, uh, wh where is your university? In Nagasaki. Oh, great. So you're, you didn't have to come very far today. No, I didn't. <laughs> and uh, we've kind of had a, a, a pre-talk here and uh, Karen told me that she's not presenting this weekend. But what are the presentations? I, I see you've uh, outlined some of the ones that you'd like to see. What, what are your various interests this weekend? Right. Um, well, I train students to be teachers of young learners, so I'll be looking at some of the young learner presentations, probably. Um, I also am interested in using picture books with uh, young learners in the classroom, and I've been doing so a little research about that. So if there's anything uh, um, on those topics, I'll be checking them out. That's interesting, because I've just interviewed someone whose research is uh, into kind of problem solving uh, with teachers when they go into the classroom and, and they feel that like their expectations versus what happens in the classroom and kind of talking about what some ways to get over this coping strategies. Um, what would you say are some of the main concerns of uh, newer teachers? Classroom management, I think, is the big one. Yeah, how to control the class. And what advice do you give them to get over that? Oh, I don't. I think <laughs> I think it's to observe other teachers as much as possible um, and follow good classroom practices that you notice or think about your own experience in the classroom and how teachers handled that. And I think it's, it's so much comes from experience, yeah. Do you have any... Um, do you, do you speak from your experience to try and give advice or do you try and allow uh, you know, student teachers to learn these things for themselves? I try and, yeah, I try and give examples, but I think it's, it's very hard in the first year of teaching especially. Uh, and you're still really nervous and think, you know, it's still hard to, to think on your feet. But yeah, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, I don't think I'm very good at teaching classroom management actually. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would have to uh, agree with that. It is something that kind of, uh, from time to time, because classroom management sometimes it's it only comes up infrequently. It's not something that you basically have to consider and work on in every single class. Some some classes go very smoothly, some go very poorly. So um, it's one of those skills that I think uh, only only comes by through experience. And so uh, as a as a final question. Um, what are the presentations that you're going to look at and uh, kind of uh, what, what do you hope to learn? All right, okay. Well, I'm actually interested in um, this one, Escape the Classroom. It's a new textbook. It's right, uh, rather an innovative textbook. So I'm going to check out that probably next. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you very much for your time today, uh, Karen. And I hope that you get everything that you are looking forward to from the conference. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so you find us now with uh, Anna Sofia Hoffmeyer, previous interviewee. How, do you, how are you finding Fukuoka so far? This is great. I had only been here once and I'm really loving it so far. Yeah. I saw you put some pictures from Ohori Park up yesterday. Did you take a tour of the city? I did. I did. I went to visit the Japanese garden actually and then uh, the nice Christmas market by Hakata Station. Yeah. So are you presenting this weekend? I am. I'm presenting Saturday, 5 p.m about intercultural competence development in uh, EFL classrooms. Is this new 
data that you're working on or are you still working through, I know it can take time to disseminate all of the work from a PhD. No, this is new data. It's fairly recent. It's data that I collected during the pandemic from the students about how they can become more interculturally competent without any access to international students or study abroad programs. And uh, this podcast is probably going to come out on Wednesday, so there's no possibility of spoilers for your presentation. Can you give us some of the you know, the outcomes and possible recommendations that you can give to other programs who are looking to do this? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in terms of what worked better, best in the classroom, definitely student-led research, uh, pair discussions and group discussions about culture, not just what is different between Japan and uh, other cultures, but looking a bit deeper as to why those differences happen and also similarities. I would say stay away from activities that can reinforce stereotypes. Having presentations that say, let's look at cultural differences between Japan and another country had a very negative effect on students' respect towards other cultures. They tend to felt that Japan was better. Uh, so a little bit more nuance in the classroom is necessary. Well, speaking like heuristically about uh, like representation, like stereotypes can sometimes be helpful. Um, in order to introduce rather than to you know, accurately frame people. Uh, how do you avoid kind of stereotyping or in including that type of material or how do you include something that looks like that but doesn't have the negative connotations? I mean, stereotypes can be a good departure point. What you have to do is make sure that you look at diversity within each culture after that. So I start by looking at diversity in the classroom. You know, students often tend to, feeling that, to have a feeling that they're all Japanese, but they have different experiences in their lives. And if they start to understand that as a class, they are different and there is diversity, then that's a good starting point to other cultures and how there's also diversity in other cultures. And as a final question, uh, do you think that this is a program that would work at any university or is it important that you actually have representations of diversity on campus in order to start the conversation? No, I think you can do it at any university and not just at university. Uh, my study focused specifically uh, at a situation where there was no international contact. And I think any teacher with any textbook could really um, integrate uh, cultural aspects into EFL classrooms more. Well, good luck with your presentation and thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Okay, so you find us here with uh, Andy Decker from uh, Kansai University, is it? That's right. And you are the LILT SIG Forum Chair. Uh, could you tell us kind of what you have to do this weekend, uh, like in a big conference like this? What, what are your tasks? Okay, so I was a part of the Literature and Language Teaching Forum last year, <clears throat> and I was asked if I would chair this year. So that involved um, kind of choosing a theme, uh, sending out a call, scheduling speakers. So I'll be chairing that forum later today. I was also tasked with uh, helping out with our featured speaker. Uh, we are bringing in a professor from Canada, Daryl Wetter. Um, we're really excited to hear him very soon. Um, he's got a short session where he'll be talking from his recent book, uh, Teaching Creative Writing, in Asia. He was 
kind of the first to start a program in Singapore, and he collected essays from others who have similar experiences. And then something I'm really excited about, tomorrow uh, he's got a, a workshop on creative nonfiction. It's got a fun title, something like Hermit Crabs and Dancing Skeletons. Um, so if you're not familiar with creative nonfiction, it's a really good opportunity to find out what that is. <laughs> uh, I studied that when I was in graduate school, but I didn't know I was doing that in undergraduate, <laughs> just doing some writing programs. Um, so yeah, that should keep me pretty busy this weekend between the speaker and um, uh, our members today and tomorrow. And I should guess from a kind of organizational point of view, kind of like as a JALTSIG chair, uh, the JALT International Conference, it's kind of like your Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> Does it kind of take over your life for several weeks, months, or is it something that you can spread out your responsibilities throughout the year? Oh, kind of the latter. Um, busy, not busy. Because <laughs> um, you have to, like I said, make some decisions about what this will look like and then see who's interested, um, kind of review those, kind of keep giving out information. It did take some time to kind of bring someone here internationally, <laughs> um, but we're really happy that that worked out. Um, and I'm hoping I find somebody uh, interested today, maybe one of our speakers from the forum, who will take over those opportunities uh, next time and continue to get us into some new themes and uh, make some decisions on what kind of speaker would be good for next year as well. Given the level of organization I see around here, I think people like you, volunteers, and you're not paid for this, right? No, no. Um, and I'm relatively a new member to our SIG. It's really nice to have just kind of opportunities um, when people have a little bit more time. It's like, yeah, I can probably do that this year. And then when people are busy, it's just, it's nice to see, I think our SIG, um, especially what I've noticed in kind of recent events is it's a combination of people that I'm getting to know that are kind of, um, you know, doing the research, but also there's just a lot of people who are interested in literature and creative writing. Maybe they're teaching in other contexts, but they'd like to try it out. They say, I don't know where I'd start, but they're often the ones that ask questions at the end. So that's been really nice. Okay, great. Well, I hope it all works out, your, your, that your featured presenter, you know, delivers for you and uh, that maybe someone can take on some of the hard work next year as well. So we've been speaking with uh, Andrew Decker and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. All right. So you find me here with uh, Malcolm Larkin from uh, Ritsumekan Asia Pacific University. Uh, very nice to talk to you again, Malcolm. Yeah. Hi, Chris. Nice to see you at the conference. Yeah. So uh, we were having a, like a, a pre-interview chat and he was telling me that uh, he is uh, the TA coordinator at APU, which is something that I've been investigating and we've actually talked about in the past. So um, how is that research going? Uh, really good, thanks. Um, so we really trying to see how the TAs are impacting the students and uh, the internationalization uh, and trying to cut out all the other variables uh, of their international experience of APU and, and seeing how the TAs are really influencing them in the classroom. Um, so we've still got to analyze the, the post-semester data, um, but that's kind of the next stage of the, the project, yeah. Um, I was having a conversation earlier, I don't know how these interviews are going to cut together, but I was speaking to another former um, employee of uh, Ritsumekan APU, Anna Hofmeyer, and talking about the idea, the concept of internationalization at home. And I asked her, do you think it's possible to do this kind of thing 
at universities that don't have a lot of international students? Is it, is it necessary to have a high number of international students in order to run a TA program like the one that you're running? Not necessarily. I mean, we live in a very uh, digital world. I guess that is a, the, uh, an easy way to connect with internationalization through uh, various media. Um, and then I guess utilizing the TAs uh, strategically in the most effective way um, is, is so important if you've got limited resources. And that's something I'm thinking about now is like trying to adapt to the program. If, for example, our budget has changed or we have less TAs, how can we actually maximize their, their impact, uh, even if it's lower numbers? That's something I'm thinking about it recently too, yeah. So resources, as you say, I mean, it's not, it's not just money, but these programs do cost a lot of money to the university. Do you have to give any reports back, any results back to show that you're using the budget you've been allocated effectively? Um, yes, there's an expectation that we should report on that. And uh, at the end of the academic year, uh, I'll give a report to the, um, the CLE, which is the Centre for Language Education meeting, um, to all the language teachers and the language directors, just giving a report on uh, what we did with that budget, the hours, uh, and hopefully we can use some of the survey uh, feedback and include some positive results on, on the impacts they had. And we really need to do that to prove that the TAs are an essential part of our university and and this goal of internationalizing our students. So I'm going to be preparing that uh, this semester. <laughs> Hopefully I can have some good proof there uh, to show uh, positive benefits of using TAs in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, now this is, uh, as a final question, but this is research that I've done in the past, actually directly interviewing TAs about their experiences. As a, as a point of recruitment, uh, what would you say, from your experience, what would you say to someone who is kind of not sure whether they want to take on the role of TA. What, what kind of positive gains do people get from being uh, in the role of a TA in your program? Right, so I think um, really uh, interpersonal skills is a huge one, of course, working with a diverse range of students, realizing that it's not always easy. Uh, some students are going to be demotivated and, and trying to work with everybody, so interpersonal skills for sure. Uh, actually just uh, building your speaking confidence, getting in front of a classroom. Uh, so kind of speaking, speech, presentation skills are going to be improved. Um, and just building that confidence. If they're going to go out and work in an international company or something, working with different people, having that confidence to communicate in English uh, is going to be a huge plus. Of course, they can put it on their resume that they've uh, built some kind of leadership qualities, uh, management uh, uh, skills as well, working with different people. So I think it's going to look great on their resume. Uh, uh, it's real world work experience. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Malcolm, and uh, good luck in your, uh, in your work with teaching assistants. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, lovely to chat with you today. Thanks. Okay, so you find us here with uh, Lisa Yip from uh, IELTS and the British Council. And um, as I was explaining to her before we started the interview, we try and get uh, different types of uh, conference experience by talking to various people. So um, uh, what is it that you're doing here at the conference this weekend? And uh, do you have any goals or anything that you're trying to achieve? Okay. Thank you once again, Chris. Um, for me, I'm actually from Hong Kong to join this JALT conference. It's my first time here. I joined the British Council for four years now. So for the past three years, everyone's been affected by COVID, obviously. So it's my first visit away from Hong Kong. So far, 
as you mentioned about the purpose being here, obviously is to meet with people like Chris or other people's here and also to promote IELTS. And you can see from the bags that you have, it's all sponsored by IELTS. It's actually, IELTS is actually a three-way uh, joined together, um, uh, uh, well, I should say partnership. It's with the Cambridge English, IDP and also British Council. So I'm very delighted to join the IDP group here uh, for the event. Uh, if you can say who are the who are the types of people you are interacting with, and what kind of questions are you getting, and what kind of information are you are you sharing? Sure. Uh, so far, the number of people that I talk with, they are mostly English teaching fellows, and also uh, a number of them are considering to also teach IELTS while they're teaching the academic content. So it's quite delighted to tell them more about what is IELTS and how it can benefit the students in Japan, particularly. Well, I've, I've taught IELTS specifically on two occasions before. One was to medical students out at our university hospital um, campus and once for our advanced English students as well in, in a test-taking class. Um, I'm, obviously, you, you work for IELTS, you work for the British Council, so you're going to say that it's a superior test. But <laughs> can you give us some uh, information to our listeners who'd, who've never used the IELTS mm. test why it is better than uh, perhaps the tests that are produced by ETS. <laughs> right, there are actually a, a lot of other tests as well, and also for immigration purpose or academic purpose. I think the most important thing, especially these 30 years since we start having IELTS, is IELTS has actually uh, widely accepted by all the universities. There's over 10,000 universities actually accepting it. So in Hong Kong particularly, and also in the world, a lot of people will do it for the academic advancement purposes and also for career advancement. And actually why in Hong Kong, if they have taken IELTS, a lot of the organization might get them a small pay rise or promotion as well. So that is another drive for people to take it and in Hong Kong there's also um, some fundings for people to apply as well so there's also another reason why people would also be very interested to take uh, an extended IELTS. Just now you asked me about the difference between IELTS and other qualifications. I think the most important thing is first thing a number of other exams they are AI driven so um, while for IELTS maybe you will say we are very traditional but actually we are very proud that like for examination speaking examination is still by examiners experience to market and for writing reading a lot of them they are online but we call it on-screen marking so we have uh, already stepping ahead in this uh, globalization in the technology world at the same time we're still very proud of what we can achieve we can help people and also how we see our exam is different to other qualifications and uh, this is this is uh, on the saturday that we're doing this recording so you've been here uh, you've been here all day already yes, talking two days. <laughs> two days already um at, do you think that uh, your uh, activities have been successful are people uh, interested or, or more interested than before? Of course. I think English language, uh, particularly for uh, Japan, would be very important. And English is what it can link to the world for anyone. And also uh, for British Council, we are proud to be a cultural organization. So we hope that we will be able to deliver particularly IELTS brand to the world and make more people aware of it and 
also uh, recognize it as well. So I think we have achieved what we want to uh, achieve here. Thank you, Chris. Well, thank you very much, uh, Lisa. And uh, I hope you get lots of people interested in the test. Thank you. Thank you once again. All right, so you find us here speaking to David White from uh, National Geographic Learning, uh, a gentleman who I've had uh, I've probably about a 15-year experience of, uh, of knowing and working uh, in textbooks and um, just general conference behaviors. As someone who is here representing a large publisher, what is kind of your experience of conferences? Like, what, what is kind of your, your routine? Um, so in terms of routine, so we'll all arrive with lots of boxes and we'll spend the afternoon really getting it all together. Um, once the, that's set up on the Friday, basically from Saturday through Sunday, we are open to people pass by, by the booth. And it's really introducing materials, listening to instructors, the kind of things they're looking for, uh, sharing what we have. Um, and we don't get the chance to go to the presentations. That's the one thing that that I regret actually because we we need to be here whereas so uh, what's nice about this conference is that there there's a good connect there's people coming into the EME space mm. that isn't always the case sometimes you can find the presentations and the materials exhibition very separate yeah. whereas this has been it's there's been good traffic uh, coming through and in terms of face-to-face conference compared to online Jack was online for the last mm. three years and really that didn't that doesn't work for us at all um, the it's no more we have everything available online in terms of samplers in terms of uh, audio and in terms of being able to request inspection copies and so there's no reason for people to come see a publisher at an online conference it's a different experience when you've got the whole tactile nature of the physical books um, that you can sit down browse through so uh, I'm so pleased that we're back face to face well I was talking to someone earlier about the organization and they've done a kind of cool thing um, not only for the, this space but also for the poster presenters mm -hmm. that they've put them front and center the first people that you see are the poster presentations and then that leads you into this space before you get to the other floors yes so um, what kind of questions do you usually get are they are they buying questions things like you know how do I get hold of these books or are they asking for uh, what the content is or what the methodology, the background, what, what, what kind of com conversa conversations do you usually have with conference participants? Yeah, it tends not to be so much about where do I buy these books, uh, where where do, can I buy these books, how much do they cost. It tends to be much more about content or the pedagogy sort of behind them. And as well, at a conference like this where it's a lot of university teachers, they are looking for next year's courses. So they would, for example, I know I need to be teaching a reading uh, course or I need to be teaching a four skills course or I need to be teaching a communicative course what do you have and so we from our portfolio we would share the range of materials highlight the key features um, certainly in terms of you know authors some authors they work for a number of different publishers so people may recognize the, the author things like that uh, and it's really a lot to do with authors as well more, now more so than before what do you have in terms of uh, supplementary or complementary digital content so we're still very print based as a business in Japan but the uh, 
the kind of hybrid um, using a digital workbook or using something like a classroom presentation tool uh, for remote teaching or, or classroom use, teachers need to know the range of components as well. So c pedagogical content and components. It's most of your content or a lot of your content that you're promoting comes from uh, National Geographic. So um, is this something that you have seen I mean, we talked before, you have worked for other publishers in the past, and I don't see your job as being a, as being a salesperson. You're more a promoter mm -hmm. and let everyone make their own decisions. Mm, kind of very thing. much so. Is the, the partnership with National Geographic, is that, um, is, that, is that a game changer? Is that something, instead of having to produce the content in-house, having a kind of library, a large stock of well-produced content that you can match to the... Uh, the pedagogical outcomes. Um, you actually just explained it perfectly. That's exactly how it works. <laughs> but yeah, but <laughs> and so basically, yeah. So Cengage, which is the the parent education company, went into partnership with the National Geographic Society about ten years ago. And it's really what we have with the National Ge Geographic Society is a wealth of in terms of images. So you've got photography, which is engaging and stimulating, video content, but also as well, it's the explorers themselves. So the National Geographic explorers and their stories. Um, so it's very much trying and our tagline is bringing the world to the classroom and the classroom to life which is all about trying to hold it's it's authentic keeping yeah. keeping it authentic but so working with the content from National Geographic and having our auth editors and our authors uh, level it in the right way yeah. and take that content keeping keeping it real keeping it meaningful but putting it at the right level for students and that combination has been really successful for us as a company uh, and the feedback that we get is it's interesting for students but it's also interesting for teachers as well uh, so it sounds like I'm doing a, an advert for the company which any opportunity I can but we that's the feedback that we get is that you've got interesting content so it's interesting to teach as well as the students to learn from but don't worry about the promotion. I, I, I spoke to Pearson earlier, so like we've, we've, we've balanced it out. Okay, well, thanks, David, and uh, I look forward to working with you again in the future. Thanks very much, Chris. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, so we are in the poster presentation area and speaking with uh, Stephen Payden, who is from uh, Rikyo University. Very nice to meet you today, uh, Stephen. Yeah, you too, Chris. So you want me to run through this? That would be great, yeah. All right, so this is uh, a group of lifelong students, lifelong learning students I've been teaching since 2003. So uh, that's what this timeline is. Uh, in 2019, was it, when COVID hit, their classes were cancelled because senior students are high risk, right? Yep. So after about a year, when we realised that we're not going to be getting back together, uh, I felt a need to get these students to just be able to make contact with each other again to you know fulfill that social need so it's all about taking this group of really old students from who are fax machine era students right that's the base that, that's the height of their technology through to getting them all together on line groups and then once we got together on line groups we got them onto having regular zoom sessions now uh, this is something I did off my own bat. I'm not getting paid for it, but uh, it's been really successful with them. Uh, they, they, it's very autonomous. They they organise themselves with uh, regular Zoom sessions. 
In the middle is the data. This, you're just recording this on audio, so I'm not going to go through the data. But there are three conclusions. Conclusion number one is getting senior students that, you know, the height of their technology is fax machines to using Zoom is very difficult. It's a challenge. Conclusion number two is that when there's no teacher present, like these Zoom sessions, it's just them meeting and talking. I'm not there. So when there's no teacher there, they don't use English. It's just Japanese. Conclusion number three is number two doesn't matter. If they're just speaking Japanese, it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the most important thing is that they are fulfilling their social needs. And to uh, to be to be clear, you said these are lifelong learners, so we're, we're yeah. assuming these are these are older, retired yeah. students. Yeah. Uh, about, about what age, by average? Uh, Average age is probably about 75, mm -hmm. 70, 75 around there, yeah. And old age students are really interesting. There's, there's different challenges and different good things about uh, old, older students. Uh, good, thing, good point first is that they forget stuff. So you can teach the same thing over and over again. <laughs> but the, the bad thing is that because they're old and because I've been teaching this class since 2003, we've actually lost a few members along the journey and... You know, they get sick. Like, we had one member have a stroke in class one day. So they've got the different challenges, but they're lovely students. Uh, they're just like my family. Yeah, so this is why I organise this for them. Well, just to give a, a kind of uh, just a, a, an audio overview, we have uh, uh, 2003 to the left, 2022 to the right. So as you say, you've been teaching this for uh, 20 years. We've moved from, we have pictures of fax machine, uh, the COVID-19 uh, line and Zoom. Um, how do your students uh, interact uh, through these two things? Is it is it through laptops or standalone computers? Or, oh, it, well, it's, uh, it's, it's whatever they have. Stephen's getting out his, uh, his smartphone here. But to be quite honest, you know, they're not very good. <laughs> like, okay, so this is one of the Zoom groups. Uh, sorry, this is one of the line groups. So most of it's just in Japanese. They just talk on a daily basis, like... That was a, they posted pics the other night of the total eclipse, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all right? But they also organize themselves around regular Zoom sessions, like here, you see Chiaki posted a Zoom session, so they all get together on that, and that's how it works. So, mostly through smartphones? Ah, uh, yeah, mostly through smartphones, and they're not really good at it. Like, I have one student, for example, Mr. Nishi, lovely student. But when he's on Zoom, he holds his phone up to his ear, so all you can see is his ear the whole time. <laughs> I haven't been able to get through to him yet that you don't hold your phone up to your ear for a Zoom session. Well, I, I work with uh, people on Zoom sessions, like professors at my university, who insist whenever they're speaking to get as close to the monitor as possible. Oh, yeah. So you do only see kind of like half their yeah. face. and then yeah. To finish, kind of a final uh, question. Yeah. Uh, what, what is your kind of like takeaway from it? What would you like people who either read your work or for me, when I walk away from here, is there anything, any message you'd like me to take away or share with our listeners if, they, yeah. if they're working in this, kind of, uh, in this yeah. kind of situation? Yeah, so the message is the most important thing for senior students is that they are getting that social contact. The actual subject matter, whether it's English or whatever it is, that's secondary. The thing is to keep them socially engaged. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephen, and I wish you the best of luck with your presentation here and also with your work in the future. Thanks, buddy. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, 
lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.